Evening, everybody. Tonight we finish the book of Titus, going through chapter 3. Just a quick recap of the situation Titus had to deal with there in Crete. We've talked about it every week. One commentator I looked up said that Crete was known for treachery, violence, and sexual corruption. I think as we keep that as the backdrop to the entire letter, it helps us to understand why Paul placed great emphasis on how to live and who can lead versus how not to live and who cannot lead. Interestingly, we can shake our heads at these barbaric Cretans, but even if we didn't live to the degree of treachery, violence, and sexual corruption as they did, although truth be told, I'm sure some Christians did, we all had some form of treachery, violence, or sexual corruption that defined us before we came to faith. If we don't believe that was true of us, if even to some degree, then we probably haven't properly understood our old nature and the depth of our corruption and sin. The book of Romans says that men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now this verse speaks first and foremost to the rejection and unbelief in God but I think it has application in the fact that the unrighteousness, this unrighteousness causes unbelievers to not only suppress the heinousness of their own sin and the punishment they will receive, but it also causes self-exaltation and falsely puts or keeps themselves on the throne of their hearts instead of allowing Christ to rule their hearts. The verses in Romans corroborates this by adding, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. I know that certainly describes the first 42 years of my life before I came to faith. And again, if we think we are somehow better than these Cretans, although, again, some may have been outwardly, Romans 1 ends with, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. That's a crazy thing to put in that list of murderers. They're slanderers, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Quite the list. It even says that we were haters of God. Did you ever think of yourself as a hater of God? before you came to faith? Well, we were. And if that isn't enough, Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, not some, not a few, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, that was the desperate state of all true born-again believers before they came to faith. And it continues to be the desperate state of all unbelievers now. Knowing this should cause us to love, worship, and serve God with all we are because of what he has rescued us from and what he has saved us to. Another aspect of the book of Titus is that it gives a short summary in each chapter of the work of God the Father through Jesus the Son, whether it's in his incarnation, his life here on earth, or his return. 
through Christ, God has poured out his grace on his people, cleansed his people from their sin, and purifies believers for himself. Through the work of the Spirit in our lives, this grace of God instructs us and gives us the power to live upright and godly lives today and every day. We must also, though, pay careful attention to theological truths. When a believer embraces sound doctrine, the result is a changed and purified life that produces good works. Hence why the title of chapter 2 in Titus was Teach Sound Doctrine. And tonight in chapter 3 is Be Ready for Every Good Work. As a side note, with the exception of the Psalms, the Bible's authors didn't write the section headings. They also didn't add the chapter or verse divisions in either. All these letters Paul wrote would have been just one long letter to his target audience. The chapters and the headings were added later by translators to help organize the Bible and give us an idea about what each section is about. With that in mind, let's see what Titus chapter 3 says. I'm going to break it down into sections and not read it all at once. I also won't be able to speak in depth on every part. Verse 1 to 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's interesting, we read as bad as the Cretans are, I sometimes wonder where Titus was even able to find people to work in the church, if the description of who they are was even a little bit accurate. From what we read about the Cretans in chapter 1, Paul could have written this, these two lines this way. Remind them, Titus, I'm just rereading what I just read in a different way. Remind them, Titus, and by them, I mean those who are insubordinate, empty talkers, who are always liars and beasts, lazy gluttons, who are defiled and unbelieving, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, to instead be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be, be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Talk about a contradiction in lifestyle. But this is what the call of the Christian life is. It is a change from one way, goal, aim, and desire in life to another. Being submissive to rulers and authorities also means we should strive to be model law-abiding citizens. Not to earn God's favor, because we already have that through faith in Christ, but to show God's favor to the world as an example of who we are. To do otherwise would be to contradict God's commands and would be sinful. And we don't get to pick and choose the laws or commands that we want to follow either. So think about that next time you're driving down the road. Pass a 35 mile per hour stop sign or speed limit sign and look down and go, whoops. Another example, I have a small business and I could easily pocket more money by giving a cash price, as many have asked. And I said, yeah, of course there's a cash price. It's the same as the check and the credit price. But that would be sinful because the government says I have to pay taxes. Romans 13 also speaks to this when Paul says we are to be subject to the governing authorities he talks about their authority being given by God and that they are actually servants of God. And then he adds, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. 
pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. This also means that I cannot just, I can't give a cash price, but I can't take one either. Let me tell you, that hurt quite a bit a couple years ago, and we've probably all had these circumstances when I need some big repairs on my truck, and I went to one guy, and he says, oh yeah, it's about 700 bucks cash price. And then I went to another place, and it was about $1,100 or $1,200. But I had to do the right thing, right? That's just one small example. But shouldn't we want to glorify God in all we do? I'm sure that God sends these trials in part to see if we will or not. Now, there are some much deeper and profound questions that may come down the road as our government turns more and more away from being godly. What will we do, and how will we respond? If it ever got to the point where the government was allowed to take our guns from us, if we had them, would we give them up? Or would we shout, Second Amendment, over my dead body or yours? These and others are tough situations we will probably have to face one day. How we respond is what matters. Christianity can run side by side with our constitutional rights, and that's great when it does at times, but there will probably become a time when we will have to pick a side. There are many Christians today who would also say the biblical commands to obey the government doesn't apply today. Some have said that these commands are only supposed to be for following godly governments, whoever they are, and since ours isn't, we don't have to follow what they say. But Paul is writing during a time when a much more oppressive government was in power, the Roman government. As much as our rights are being infringed on today, it paled in comparison to how they operated back then. Unless we need the perfect example of obeying governmental authorities, we of course have Jesus, who obeyed the government unto death. In John's Gospel, we read how the Jewish leaders turned Jesus over to Pontius Pilate because it was unlawful for them to put him to death. After questioning Jesus and finding no guilt in him, Pilate again questioned Jesus, who wouldn't reply this time. He said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So think about the enormity of this for a minute. Pontius Pilate's authority, just like all government authorities, past, present, and future, is given by God. Now, of course, most don't realize or acknowledge this, but they don't come to their own authority on their own. God sets up all authorities for his good purpose. It was God the Father's plan that Jesus would be crucified, and he used the very authority he set up through Pontius Pilate to accomplish his will. Jesus had to obey Pontius Pilate in order to obey his Father's will. 
Any argument or decision a Christian could make to not obey the government authorities is to disobey God. Of course, we know that in their decrees or rules run contrary to scripture, then we have to disobey. But what about my rights? What about my rights? Isn't there something I can do? Well, of course, we certainly can use the legal means that are in place to try to stop it. But in the end, if that is a form of persecution for our faith, which it probably will be, then we must obey. What about that other example of my guns? Yes, even our guns. This country, as great as it is, is not our home. It's simply a place God has placed us in until we reach our final destination. We are not living for this country. We should be living for another. Living with that as our mindset or at the forefront of our lives is the only way it's possible to live this way. That also means we must obey the Bible and submit to the authorities, even if what happens to us goes against our perceived rights. As one professor of theology said, Christian believers owe obligations to lawfully appointed human authorities and must obey them because God, as the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him and over the people for his own glory. The passages in the book of Hebrews our pastor spoke on recently deserve repeating. Talking to believers, the writer says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and you joyfully, still don't understand how that can be in there, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. These Christians' newfound faith brought public reproach and affliction. Are we willing to go through that for the sake of the kingdom? <laughs> Sounded good. They suffered the plundering of their property because of their faith. I, don't cer I certainly don't want that to happen to me, but if it does, or to any of us, will we joyfully accept it? We can only do it if we have this, the same mindset as they have, because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. We must also be careful here, because intermixed in these verses I just read is a stern warning to those who profess to know God, but deny him by their works as we heard in Titus 1. I just read this. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, not our will or my will, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For my righteous one shall rule, live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
Part of this living in faith is trusting God no matter the circumstances of our life, no matter the suffering, the affliction, the sorrow, the loss, or the loneliness. God is worthy to be believed and trusted in every circumstance. If we don't and we shrink back, which in the Greek it means to draw back, to withdraw, to retreat, or back off, God says his soul will have no pleasure in us. Of course, that's not always easy, and we can't always obey perfectly, and that's not what this passage is saying. So no, we don't have to worry about God having no pleasure in us if we don't get it right every time. Let's be clear on that. Here it is a rejection of what God's word says, not falling short upon occasion. And this is why we need strong, bold faith. And if you don't have it, you can. Steve spoke a couple weeks ago about not having simply because we don't ask. I would add to that that just asking alone isn't always enough. We can't just ask and sit back and do nothing. The Christian life is not just passive, but it must be active. The Bible is clear. If we want strong, bold faith, if we want to live and walk in holiness and uprightness, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then we must strive after it. Many verses that say this. Proverbs 13, 4 says, The soul of the diligent is richly supplied. That's not the sluggard who is richly supplied, but the diligent. The Holy Spirit will do this work in us because that's exactly what he wants for us. Do we believe that? How many believers know more about the statistics of their favorite sports teams or players than they know about the Bible? Do we put the things of the kingdom at the front and center of our lives and everything else behind us in the back? Or is it the other way around? In Philippians 3, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I wonder how many refrigerators have these verses taped to them. As I said, the Christian life is not just passive, but must be active. This is why Paul then tells Titus in verse 1 to be ready for every good work. Why? Because there must be evidence or fruit in our lives of our new life. That's important, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That seems like a harsh statement of our lives prior to Christ, but it is true in one way or another. Some of the many examples of the proof text in the Bible of our total depravity and inability to do anything pleasing in God's eyes, unless, of course, we have true faith, are Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and 9, we read, The heart of the children of man is full of evil and fully set to do evil. A lot of us know Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The book of Romans, we read, Those in the flesh, which means not born again, unbelievers, cannot please God. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then going back to the book of Hebrews again, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So why is it again important to know this? Because unless we recognize our true state before being saved, we will fail to see or we might fail to see the amazing gift that true salvation is. And we will fail to give God his full due or we may fail to give God his full due in our praise, worship, and way we live our lives for what he has saved us from and what he has saved us to. You remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Good movie. Anybody not see Castaway? You never saw it. So he's a big, I think he's a big FedEx, uh, big wig in FedEx, and he's flying across uh, the ocean, and these big storms way off course, and the plane crashes in the water, and he's the only survivor. So he's on the island for a few years, and he finally decides to leave the island. He was stranded on. He makes this makeshift raft. Uh, he's out there on the water. The winds and the storm, you see, tear it to bits. And he's left clinging to a few pieces of wood to survive. He was adrift with no hope of being saved and probably no doubt believing that his life was over. But then he was rescued. As perilous as his situation was, it was still far better than the perilous state each and every one of us is, was in before God saved us. Our sin has created a chasm that was far too broad for any passing containership to rescue us from, like his character was. It is only how we see how great this separation was between us and a holy God that we will desire to live for him always. And it's not the same as someone who gets rescued from drowning in the ocean says, oh, you're my hero. I owe you my life. I'll do anything for you. And of course, it fades over time. This is a lifelong service, praise, and living for God for what he has done for us. The problem with the world is they don't see themselves adrift in the sea with no hope of being rescued. They think they're fine, just as we all once did. It is only as we come to true faith and see what the Bible says that we realize how desperately lost we once were. Which leads us to these stunning statements in verses 4 to 7. But, and how amazing is that word but in our text. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a marvelous set of statements. The Bible couldn't be any clearer here, though. We were saved not because of our works, but by God's mercy, because he is good. 
if good works played any part in our salvation, think about this, when we get to heaven, we could high-five one another and boast about what we did here on earth. Good job, brother. You did a great job there down on earth getting yourself into the kingdom. In that moment where we were self-congratulating ourselves or others, we wouldn't have to think about God for even a moment because it would all be about ourselves. And as long as our celebration of ourselves went on, God would be nowhere in the equation. And that simply cannot be. Just the thought of that should cause us to shudder. I think one reason some people want to put good works in as a part of their salvation is because deep inside, they feel that there is some inherent good in themselves or others and that we cannot be completely and totally depraved as the Bible says. Otherwise, that would make salvation all of God's grace. But we are, and it is. The Roman Catholic Church would say that good works play a part in our salvation. I would say that's heretical. But where, where do they get this from? This giant denomination, where do they get that from? Well, at least in part, they get it from the Bible. Wait a minute, that's in the Bible? In the book of James, and they will use this verse. We read this in chapter 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hey, that can't be right. I think that's what it says. This is where Bible reading and proper interpretation must come into play. If we just pluck this verse out of context, put it up here and make it stand alone, we could probably make a halfway decent argument that contradicts our verses here in Titus and in other places in the Bible. But we can't just pluck every single verse out of context and make it stand alone. Now, there are some that are very strong, and we can. This verse has to be read in the context of the verses around it. This is how you read the Bible. Then in the chapter, then the book, and then what the whole Bible says on that topic. Once we find all the verses that are relevant, we lay them all out. All right, here's some, here's some here. These seem pretty strong. Here's some here. They don't seem as strong. We interpret the weaker verses through the stronger verses and not the other way around. Another example of this is the verse where it says, God desires all to be saved. If that was the case, then they would be. Unless, of course, God wasn't strong enough to save them and their will could undermine God's will. But there are many stronger verses where we read the opposite. So that verse must be interpreted in light of the stronger and more numerous verses. It's the same with this verse in James. Interestingly, the Greek word for justified here in James is the same in Romans 8 that talks about it all being a work of God, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So we might ask ourselves, do we have a conundrum here? Is the Bible contradicting itself? What are we to do? Well, first we have to ask, what is the context of the letter of James? It's all about people who say they are true believers, but have no good works to show proof of their profession of faith. We must interpret what James is saying based on that context. 
we also must interpret it based not only on our verse in Titus, where he saved us not because of works, which I read, but also on one of the strongest verses on salvation by God's grace alone. In Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a strong verse. Going back to context, James says this, calling out those he's writing to, right? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So when was Abraham's belief in the promises of God counted to him as righteousness? It was long before he offered up his son Isaac. He was already saved when he did this. Through saving faith, Abraham believed the promises of God. Then he performed good works to show or demonstrate his faith. Book of James goes on, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. When did Rahab come to faith? Was it after she did her good works or before? In Joshua 2, we read her profession of faith to the spies and that it occurred before she hid them and which was the cause of her good works. When she said to them, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She was already saved when she hid the spies. Her good works were a demonstration of her faith, not to get faith. So I read this one time, I'm stealing it from somebody. What we do does not determine who we are. Who we are determines what we do. Our good works are a demonstration of who we are and can never be the means of inheriting or meriting entry into God's kingdom. So we're not saved by works, but by God's mercy through what? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not outward cleansing or purification rites as the Jewish people would have known as described uh, back in the Old Testament. You can read that in the book of Numbers. It is an inward washing of our hearts and souls. We see a shadow or picture of this in the Old Testament story of Naaman. If you remember, he was a commander of the army of Syria. 
and he was described as a great man and high favor because the Lord had given him victory. He was a mighty man of valor. No one wanted to go up to battle against him, but he was a leper. God providentially worked it out so that this young Israelite girl who had been taken captive would be the means of his being cured. Now, we sometimes skip over that part of the story. She was taken captive from her family, but God was going to use her to cure Naaman because she knew that there was a prophet that could. She said, just go see this prophet Elijah. He can cure you. So Naaman came to Elijah, believing that Elijah could cure him. What's Elijah do? Does he run out to meet him? No. He sends a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now, of course, Naaman became enraged and he left because Elijah himself didn't come to him. And the text in the Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands all over the place to cure him. That's what he wanted to show. But his servants convinced him to go back simply on the promise that he could wash and be clean. The belief in this promise and the outward washing in the river are a picture of the inward washing that the Holy Spirit does in us to wash us and make us clean. Why do we need this regeneration or washing? As I read from Ephesians 2, we were all following the prince of the power of the air. In John 8, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. In Acts 2, Paul is sent out to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And in 2 Timothy 2, we read that all unbelievers, that's young and old, are caught in the snare of the devil being captured by him to do his will. That's a pretty heavy statement. That means that prior to being saved, we were all children of Satan, following his will as he ruled our hearts. He must be dethroned. And in our renewed state, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> There's an additional aspect to our being born again and why it is necessary for more than just salvation alone. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan lady at the well. Jesus is, he says he can give her living water, which is a new spiritual life. Besides having our eyes open to see the kingdom of God and profess faith in Christ, why do we need a new spiritual life? Jesus continues in his conversation with her. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And our old self, we cannot worship God in spirit and in truth because we are spiritually dead and ignorant to the truths of the Bible. That's part of what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit. It is through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which means being born of the Spirit, 
that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. And it's only when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us, inside of us that we can truly worship God in spirit and in truth. God who is spirit cannot commune with that which is spiritually dead and set against him. We become one with God through faith in Jesus. But that oneness can only occur because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Now we all know we have the sinful nature that still lives inside of us, but we also have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who is perfect, and that part of us cannot sin. The Spirit is the only one who makes our prayers, our singing, our playing of musical instruments or anything else we do, no matter how great it might sound or look to us or others, acceptable to God. If Pavarotti himself were to sing the greatest aria ever written, it would still fall far short of what is worthy and acceptable to God, unless the Holy Spirit made it so. Now, there is an order that God works in us to bring us to faith. And to be truly saved, it's not absolutely necessary to know this order beforehand. It is something that we learn as we grow in faith and knowledge. Is where we read in Romans 8. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As I said, justified here is the same Greek word in James. The Christian salvation was already foreknown and predestined to happen before the beginning of time. God calls us to him by the power of his spirit. That also means that no one wakes up one day and says, I think I'm going to go find Jesus today, unless God has first worked this calling in us. Before we do come to faith or make our profession of faith, the Holy Spirit first regenerates us or renews or enlightens us so that we can see for the first time the truth of the gospel and our desperate need to be saved because of our sin. We see further proof of this in John's gospel in chapter 3 again when, again, talking to Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jewish people, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus replies, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. We see another example of this in the parable of the seeds that are thrown on the different soils. The seed, we know, is the word of God. It's the same seed in every example. The only difference in the seeds that take root and produce fruit is the soil that it is thrown on. The word of God will have different effects on different people based on the soil of their hearts. When we undergo the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the soil in our hearts is changed. We go from having a heart that won't receive the word don't want anything to do with it, to a heart that wants it. This is all a work of the Holy Spirit because of the mercy and goodness of God. And we know 
That's why some people, they've heard the gospel a hundred times, a thousand times, and they want nothing to do with it. But on that hundred and first time, wow, I never heard that before. Sometimes you just want to give them a little smack. You're like, yeah, you've heard it a hundred times, you've heard it a thousand times. That's because the Holy Spirit has made an inward change, and they now can see the kingdom of God. Once that happens, then we do make a free and clear profession of faith. Puritan Daniel Burgess puts it this way, the application of Christ to us to produce our salvation is twofold. God first applies Christ to us by the Holy Spirit by giving us the will and the power to embrace Christ as offered in the gospel. We then apply Christ to ourselves when, by the faith worked in us, we freely embrace him to be our Lord and Savior forever. Unless we think any of us has something to do with saving ourselves or being based on any works we might do, through the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, God says this in chapter 36. And let me know if you hear anything that talks about our part in saving ourselves. This is what God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, take it out, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. That's kind of what happens when we come to faith, right? We come to an understanding of how heinous our sin is before our holy God when before we never would have believed it. God then adds, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Basically, that means there was nothing good in any of us that God saw that caused him to do that. If that doesn't stop us in our tracks and cause us to love, serve, and worship God with all we are, then we may not have a proper understanding of what true salvation is and what we have been saved from and what we have been saved to. The Titus verses also tell us that God's mercy has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, not a little bit, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. For any person who subscribes to any other religion and would say all religions are the same, or, you know, we might use different means, but we'll all get to the same end, this verse tells us that God's mercy and becoming heirs with him and having assurance of eternal life with him comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. This is reminiscent of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. This is why we must be gentle yet firm if we have conversations with others who would assert this. 
I had a conversation with a Muslim man the other day and exactly what he tried to tell me. Uh, talking about it's all the same God, all good people go to heaven, God knows our hearts, he sees our good deeds and he counts them towards our salvation. I gently but firmly told him Christianity differs from all other religions because it says there's nothing anyone can do that is good outside, good in God's eyes outside of faith in Christ. And even his two beautiful little children were playing outside. I told him, they need Jesus too. I was gentle with him. I invited him to read the Bible with me, and even though he acknowledged Jesus is alive and coming back, and that his Quran says he can read the Bible, he said he'd think about it. I hope he does. Next set of verses, 8 to 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So here's our good works again Paul's talking about. He's clear that we must be devoted to good works. Matthew 5, we read, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's no coincidence that good works are listed four times in just three chapters in the book of Titus. One time is in the negative and the other three are in the positive. And so it's good to remember that Paul is making these statements about good works against the backdrop of who the Cretans are. I'll just read them real fast. From Titus 1, Cretans are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that's the negative. Chapter 2, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And then again, zealous for good works. And then chapter 3, those who have believed in God must be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul says these things are excellent and profitable for people. I think we'd all agree on that. Paul then adds in verse 9 to 11, a sort of bookend to his letter from the lifestyle of those we are to avoid and that we read about in chapter 1 by then saying, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. He's kind of bringing back what he said earlier uh, as uh, an impact at the end here. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That is some pretty harsh language to do nothing, have nothing more to do with those types of people, especially because that can describe a lot of people in our families who aren't born again and want nothing to do with the gospel. In context here, though, Paul is not talking about those close to us. So that's a comfort. 
He's talking about those within the church who profess faith in Christ, but live contrary to his word and whose only desire is to stir up division. All the commentators I looked up would hold to this too. So that's good news. If you were here when I taught on Titus 1, Paul said, for those within the Christian community that are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, they must be silenced. There is a procedure for handling troublemakers in the church, and it should be done as gently as possible and with only the necessary measure of firmness, not more. Paul tells us this in 2 Thessalonians, and I'm paraphrasing here. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from here. That word idleness means different things in the Greek, right? It means disorderly, it can mean breaking rank, or it can mean dis disobedient or insubordinate to God's word. Paul continues, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Restoration is always the goal, and sometimes a person needs to be excluded from the church for this to happen. It's done out of love and concern for their soul and hopes that they would turn from their sin and be restored. Paul then ends the letter with some final words. One more mention of being devoted to good works, especially in cases of urgent need, and then bear bids farewell, saying, grace be with you all. That is a wonderful statement to make to fellow believers. Grace be with you all. 